Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the host of this podcast. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University, and I really appreciate you listening to the podcast today. This past week, I was able to go to Louisville, Kentucky with my wife for the wonderful privilege of graduating from seminary. I received my doctorate in ministry in expository preaching from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and it was a, a wonderful time. The, the weather was good except for at the, at the middle of the graduation, it actually started raining, and so Dr. Moeller cut it short, but... Um, those of you that have listening that are listening that have graduated from Southern, you understand kind of the the protocol and all of the um, official things that happen when you graduate from Southern. And one of the joys was um, on the day before the graduation, we had a rehearsal. And this is a formal rehearsal. You have to show up in a in a, in a coat and tie and be dressed up. And then after the rehearsal, uh, you get to go over to Dr. Moeller's uh, mansion, <laughs> the seminary-owned house there. And the shuttle takes you from the seminary across the street, and then you get to enter into his parlor and greet um, Dr. Moeller and his wife, uh, Mary, and tell him a little bit about yourself and introduce your wife, and you get to you know, exchange pleasantries, and then you go out in his back lawn, and there's all this food and refreshments, and that was a really a great time of of being able to meet Dr. Moeller and um, just to be a part of that. Uh, then again, after the graduation, I got to uh, get my picture taken with Dr. York. Uh, Herschel York was my supervisor. Um, he is the, the chairman of the preaching department at Southern. And then I also got to get my picture with um, Dr. Moeller. So if you do follow me on Facebook, you can see some of those those pictures. And so it was a great time to get away to um, to be there with my wife. My parents were there. Uh, some of the co- cohort buddies that I went through were there with their families, and I got to meet them. And it was a it was a great time. And while I, we were out there, my wife and I had and I had a chance to to spend some time together and just talk about some things. And as I've mentioned on the podcast before, she does not really listen to podcasts. Uh, she doesn't follow a lot of the blogs. She doesn't get into all these controversies of of traditional Southern Baptists and Calvinists and non-Calvinists and Arminians, and and that's just not really her cup of tea. And one thing that she said to me that was really helpful, um, she just sat me down and said, "Sean, what do you want to be known for?" Um, you're on a podcast and you're broadcasting out there and you've got a blog and you've got a presence through Twitter and Facebook and you're a pastor. And and so what do you want to be known for? Do you want to be that argumentative guy that when the first thing that pops into people's mind when they think about Sean Cole is, is he argumentative? Is he combative? What does he really stand for? And that really got me thinking about uh, the nature of this podcast, and I, and I do hope that this podcast is helpful. Um, I hope that this podcast is uplifting, that it's not um, hurtful or it's not bitter or it's not overly polemical or angry, uh, that it's a blessing to you. And so uh, one of the things that she challenged me to do is maybe to do, she wanted me to do a daily podcast for maybe like a 10-minute podcast called Strength for Today, where I just share maybe 10 minutes of devotional thoughts from my scripture readings that would encourage people. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to do that every day, but um, in the near future, we may be starting a new 
um, aspect of the podcast called Strength for Today. Uh, this, this came directly from my wife, Dawn, who encouraged me to do this. She said, you know, sometimes the theology talk is great and, and all of the different issues, but sometimes people just need strength for today. And maybe you could give a 10-minute um, devotion, a thought, an encouragement from Scripture. And so uh, you, hopefully you'll see those things coming and encouragement for you. But um, yesterday I was going through... Uh, the internet and going through YouTube as I as I normally do on some of my feeds, and I came across Dr. James White's uh, response to Michael Brown in his short YouTube clip on on why I'm a Calvinist, and I've heard John Piper uh, do that as well on um, Ask Pastor John. Uh, many famous Calvinists and Reformed uh, pastors and leaders will oftentimes give uh, a reason why they are. Reformed, or they hold to the doctrines of grace, and so as I thought about that, I, you know, on a, on a previous podcast, maybe six or seven months ago, I, I talked about my personal journey, but I don't think I've ever really sat down and thought about, you know, what are the, why am I this? Besides, I believe it's biblical, um, but. In, in, in great Synod of Dort format, I've given my five points or my five reasons why I hold to the doctrines of grace. Why am I in the Reformed camp? Um, let me just preface this before I get to these five reasons that um, it's not because of, of John Calvin by any stretch of the imagination. It's not because of John Piper. It's not because of John Owen. It's not because of John MacArthur. Uh, you got uh, four Johns there. Uh, some famous men in the Reformed theology world. Um, oftentimes we can tie ourselves to an individual. We can tie ourselves to a movement like the Gospel Coalition or Together for the Gospel, or we can tie ourselves to a denomination, whether it's the Founders Movement in the Southern Baptist Convention or, or maybe the Presbyterian Church in America or, or Sovereign Grace or all these different um, affiliations. And, and those are important and they have their place. But ultimately, uh, the reason why I hold to the belief I do is because I am thoroughly convinced of the Scriptures that this is what they teach. That if you look and you study and you exegete and you seriously handle the Scriptures, you come away with a Reformed theology, because that's the consistent teaching of the biblical text. And so my basis for these five reasons is not because I hold to man-made teaching, as oftentimes is given the charge, or you just, you're just following a man. No, it's because I believe that this is the consistent testimony of the Scripture. So let me give you the five reasons, or to tongue-in-cheek, the five points of why I am a Calvinist. And so here's reason number one. I believe the doctrines of grace place a greater emphasis on the sovereignty and glory of God than other viewpoints. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, it's the longest sentence in the New Testament. Uh, Paul strings together some great theological truths that are Trinitarian in nature, talking about the comprehensive nature of our salvation, that God the Father has done something in our salvation. Jesus the Son has done something in our salvation. Uh, God the Holy Spirit has done something in our salvation. And so this is a, a clearly Trinitarian passage of Scripture, but it also has a refrain that's repeat, repeated 
three times uh, to the praise of his glorious grace. And so when Paul talks about salvation from first to last, it's ultimately to lead us to praise God's glory and God's grace. And so Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, that's the the opening statement. What are these spiritual blessings that God has granted to us? He goes on to explain even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. There's the first time it's mentioned. With which He has blessed us in the Beloved. That's the work of God the Father. God is choosing us, God is adopting us, God is working out His purpose, God is predestining us, God is loving us. The Father is showing us this tremendous uh, salvation in Christ and it's to the praise of His glorious grace. And then in verse 7, it moves on to the role of Jesus the Son in our salvation. In Him, that is Christ, we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace with which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works out all things according to the counsel of His will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Uh, There's the second use of that, to the praise of His glory. And this is all wrapped up in the work of Christ in our redemption. And then He transitions to the role of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. There's the third refrain, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glorious grace. Three times in this passage, our salvation is to redound to the praise of the triune God, a God who is sovereign, a God who is worthy to be praised. In the doctrines of grace, emphasize the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. In verse 11, it says, He works out all things according to the counsel of His will. God is working out His will. God is working out all things. God is sovereign. God is on His throne. God is majestic. God is ruling. God is reigning. God is meticulously in charge of all things. And that should lead us to praise His glorious name. Psalm 33, 8-11, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generation. The sovereignty of God that the counsel of the Lord should lead us to stand in awe of Him. To worship Him. Psalm 135, verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth and the seas and all the deeps. 
Isaiah 46, 9-10, Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. Daniel 4.35, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now, as we look at this first point, the idea that the doctrines of grace teach the absolute sovereignty of God that should lead us to glorify and magnify Him, the question is, okay, what's our response to this? What should be our response to this God? And the response is worship. We bow, we stand in awe, we fall to our knees and we worship God. A God who is thoroughly God-centered. A God who's first and foremost concerned with His glory, making much of Him. You see, the Bible does not start with making much of us. The Bible does not start at the, at the vantage point of, of humans and human will and human decision and human autonomy. The Bible starts with God as creator, God as sustainer, God as sovereign. And so from Genesis to Revelation, the, the grand narrative of the Bible is that God is the central character. God is the primary actor. God is the initiator. God is the one to receive glory. It doesn't start with man. It doesn't start with with man's superiority, with man's um, intellect, with man's autonomy, with man's creaturely freedom. It starts with God. And so reason number one, I believe that the doctrines of grace have a greater emphasis on the sovereignty and majesty and glory of God, which should lead us to worship, to be thoroughly God-centered. Here's point number two, or reason number two. I believe the doctrines of grace have a better understanding of depravity and the inability of man, which shows the necessity of sovereign grace. All other systems or viewpoints or theologies have an inadequate view of the total depravity and inability of of humans according to the Scriptures. Jesus is very clear in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. These are the words of Jesus. We cannot come to Christ. Not that we won't or that we will not, but that we cannot. We lack the inherent ability to come unless God draws us and raises us. You know, when I think about my own personal sin, and and really, let me just give you a little personal testimony here. When I was growing up, and of course, I grew up in a traditional Southern Baptist church, and we understood sin. I mean, I grew up, you know, knowing the Romans road for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. I knew what it meant to be a sinner. I mean, I was saved at the age of eight, and I understood I was a sinner. I understood I broke God's law. I knew I needed forgiveness. And so, thankfully, I was in a church that, that taught sin the reality of sin. But it really wasn't until I came to understand the doctrines of grace that I personally understood the depth, the radical nature 
of my own personal depravity. I mean, I knew I was a sinner. But there was always that idea that there was something that I contributed to my salvation. I was never taught growing up that I was dead in sin. I was never taught growing up that I couldn't come to Christ on my own. I mean, I was brought up in a church tradition that was very much related to free will. God gives the invitation. God knocks at your heart. You have the power to open it. Open your heart to Jesus. Surrender your life to Jesus. Um, walk down this aisle. Come forward. Raise your hand. Rededicate your life. You know, the Savior's a gentleman. He's not going to intrude. God's just waiting for you. And so it's all up to you. The, you know, God's cast his vote. The devil's cast his vote. It's, it's up to you to, to cast the deciding vote if you're going to be saved let God do these things that was the terminology I grew up with and it wasn't until I truly understood the doctrines of grace that I understood the depth and the radical nature of my own depravity I mean Psalm 51 5 David says behold I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me I mean I was conceived in sin Jeremiah 17 9 the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it? Jeremiah thirteen twenty three, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? And also can you who do good, do good who are accustomed to doing evil? You know, it really wasn't until I, I understood Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3. That was the real bombshell. I mean, I, I'd read through the Bible. I knew the Bible. But I don't think I ever really paid attention to the text that taught depravity and inability ephesians 2 1 through 3 and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked you were dead when i was growing up i was never taught that i was dead in sin i taught that i was taught that i was sick and that i was needful of the gospel and that i wasn't i wasn't so sick that i couldn't reach out and and, and ask for help I've always was told the, the illustration growing up that, you know, you're, you're like a, a person that's drowning out at sea and your head is bobbing up and, and down above and below the water and you're gasping for breath. And all you need is to have someone throw out a life preserver. And, and when you throw out the light, when they throw out the life preserver, you just need to reach out and grab that life preserver. And, and once you grab the life preserver, um, you will be saved. And I, that's the, the imagery I was taught growing up. And so, again, there's a view of sin there. There's a view of helplessness there, but there's not a view of deadness. You know, that view assumes that you have the ability and the power to actually reach out and grab the salvation. It doesn't teach deadness. A better translation or a better illustration would be that you're a spiritually dead corpse on the bottom of the ocean, and you're dead. And you're and not that you're floating up and down needing help. You, you don't need just somebody to throw a life preserver for you to do the rest and reach out and grab it in your own free will. No, you're spiritually dead. I was spiritually dead. And I needed resurrection power. I needed sovereign grace. I followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I don't ever remember growing up hearing about the wrath of God. That was never talked about. 
Now, I understood God's judgment. People talked about hell in generalities, but I don't think I ever had a clear theological teaching growing up on the wrath of God. I don't think I ever even knew that until actually I went to seminary in my late 20s. Unfortunately, no pastor ever talked about the wrath of God, the the anger of God abiding over those who are dead in sin and how we deserve hell. And this passage of Scripture says it was our nature. We inherited a nature from Adam that makes us children of wrath. I didn't understand that growing up. But as I've come to understand the doctrines of grace, it's made me appreciate so much the need in my life for God to sovereignly regenerate me irresistibly through His power to overcome my deadness, to overcome my inability. Romans 8, 7-9, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I mean, I grew up believing that I was a sinner and I was separated from God, but these categories were never really fleshed out for me. I was never taught that my mind was hostile to God, that I couldn't please God, that I lacked the ability to submit to God's law. Yeah, I knew I was a sinner in need of salvation, but the, 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 the radical nature, the depth of the depravity, the, the overwhelming sense of inability was never really taught to me growing up. And again, I grew up in a traditional Southern Baptist church, good Southern Baptist churches, quality Southern Baptist churches. I heard the gospel. I, I was under expository preaching, but these categories I never really understood. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Jesus compounds the issue. Yeah, sorry, I'm reading something that was, that was not supposed to be there. Um, we do not accept the things of the Spirit. We are not able to understand them, for they're spiritually discerned. I remember in college having a discussion with my dad, who was a, a pastor, and, and my dad's not Reformed. My dad's not Calvinistic. He's a traditional Southern Baptist, but he did... Um, tell me, he said, hey, hey, Sean, this verse teaches that the Holy Spirit has to illuminate your mind and heart for you to be able to understand truth. And he said, that's why lost people, non-Christians, you can talk to them about the gospel and they, they really can't understand what you're talking about until the Holy Spirit gets a hold of them. And so to me, that was taught to me and I, and I took it to mean, yeah, we need the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. I understood that, but I didn't understand the full grasp of that text that you can't understand the oracles of God. You can't understand the gospel. You can't, it's foolishness. Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 is just, it's this dichotomy, this contrast between the wisdom of God and the gospel and human foolishness that sees the gospel as a stumbling block. And that when we, when, when lost people look at the cross, when they look at Jesus, when they look at the gospel, it's foolishness, it's moronic, it's a stumbling block, it's the stench of death. It doesn't make any sense to them. But those who are called, those who've been regenerated, those who have the Spirit, they see the cross not as foolishness or a stumbling block, but as beautiful, as life, as the power of God. John eight thirty four. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. I didn't understand that. 
I understood I was a sinner, but I don't think I understood I was a slave to sin. You see, I grew up in a church culture that taught sin, yes. Taught hell, yes. But it wasn't total depravity. It wasn't total inability. It was more of a semi-Pelagiism, you're spiritually sick, you are a sinner, God has provided a way, but it's up to you to accept the gift, it's up to you to walk forward, it's up to you to ask Jesus into your heart, it's up to you to let Jesus into your life when He's knocking on the door. You see, I was never taught depravity, inability, a slave to sin, hostile to God, child of wrath. No one can come. I wasn't taught these things until I began to understand the doctrines of grace. And so what's our response to this second point? Humility. Humility. When you come to the point where you realize that God was not obligated to save you, that God was under no obligation to choose you or elect you or predestine you or regenerate you, but He did simply because of His sovereign mercy, and that you were radically corrupted, that I was totally dead in my sins, that I was hostile to God, that I could not do any good in and of myself to to humble myself, to come to Him, to ask Him into my heart, all these things, I I was dead. And God overcame the deadness. God overcame the inability. God sovereignly reached down in His grace and actually overcame those things. Didn't give me the ability to overcome those things. And that should produce humility. Here's point number three, reason number three. I believe the doctrines of grace teach that salvation from first to last is the accomplishment of the triune God, not a system, a plan, or some type of enabling that makes it available or possible or hypothetical. One of the key differences is, as I'm listening to my non-Calvinistic brothers and the terminology that they use is that God brings the gospel to enable a response. To enable a response. And the question then becomes, if God brings the gospel to enable a response and you don't respond, then you must not have been enabled to respond. And why were you not enabled to respond? Either there's something lacking in the gospel or something lacking in God. You see, here's the the fundamental difference between Calvinism and all other systems, whether it's Arminianism, Synergism, um, non-Calvinistic, traditional Southern Baptist theology, whatever it is that's that's not a Calvinistic system. Calvinism says that from first to last, the triune God actually accomplishes the salvation. Doesn't make it possible, doesn't make it hypothetical, doesn't enable, doesn't give assisting grace. God accomplishes it. The Father in eternity past literally actually elected you to salvation. Jesus Christ on the cross actually literally paid for your sins. He propitiated God's wrath. He redeemed you. It wasn't a hypothetical. It wasn't, um, you know, a potentiality. He truly paid for His people. And then the Holy Spirit comes in sovereign regeneration and actually regenerates doesn't give prevenient grace, doesn't give assisting grace, doesn't give enabling grace, but actually gives over-conquering, overpowering grace. And so the, the Bible teaches that from first to last, the triune God 
accomplishes salvation. They're, they're in harmony with one another. The Father elects, the Son redeems, the Holy Spirit effectually calls and regenerates. And they work in tandem with this ultimate purpose of redeeming God's people. I mean, you don't see potential language in the Bible. You don't see enabling language in the Bible. You don't see hypothetical language in the Bible when it comes to the accomplishment of Christ in the cross or in the work of the Holy Spirit. Matthew one twenty one, She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save, not that he'll make salvation possible, not that he'll die on the cross in the hopes that some people will use their free will to come. He will save. It's, 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 a, it's not a hypothetical reality. It's, it's an actual accomplishment. John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Does that sound like potentiality? No, it's the, the, the Father is sovereignly giving to the Son a people and they will infallibly come. They'll come. John 10, 14 through 16, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Does that sound like potentiality? I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep in hopes that hopefully they'll hear my voice and then when the Holy Spirit woos, they can either reject or they can either accept. No, Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. I'm going to do it for the sheep. And they will listen to my voice. They will come to me. No potentiality, no hypothetical. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Who makes us alive? God makes us alive. He accomplishes the regeneration. We don't make ourselves alive. We don't put ourselves in a position to somehow be willing to make ourselves alive. The grace doesn't enable us to somehow choose in order for us to be regenerated after we have faith. No, it's, it's, it's a sovereign work of God where He makes alive. And then you have the golden chain of redemption in, in Romans 8, 28-30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And then verse 30, those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. There's no potentiality. There's no hypothetical. There's no plan that's set up that people can you know may or may not you know use their free will no from first to last there is a golden chain god foreknew a people he set his electing love on a people and those same people he predestined and those same people he called and those same people he justified and those same people he will glorify there's no break or slippage in the chain God's going to do it from first to last. The triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, work in concert, work in unity to bring about the ultimate comprehensive salvation of the elect. And so what is our response to this? Assurance. The assurance of our salvation. The assurance that 
that God is the one that's accomplishing this. It's not up to me. It's not a hypothetical. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't that he made salvation possible. It's that he actually redeemed me. God actually elected me and predestined me in eternity past. The Holy Spirit actually sovereignly regenerated my dead heart and brought me to faith. The golden chain of redemption will not be broken. That gives me great assurance to know that from first to last, the triune God works in complete concert in unity of purpose to bring about the salvation of God's people. Reason number four. I believe the doctrines of grace give me confidence in evangelism and missions that God will bring His sheep into the fold from all tribes, people, and nations. One of the arguments that you'll hear is that if you believe in Calvinism, it cuts the guts out of evangelism. Those Calvinists, they don't believe in evangelism. They don't believe in praying for lost people. They don't, they don't do missions. If God's going to save them, they're just going to get zapped and, and, and then God's going to save them and we don't need to send missionaries and we don't need to do evangelism and we don't need to proclaim the gospel uh, because it's all settled and, and God's got it all worked out so He doesn't need us. That is hyper-Calvinism. That is unbiblical. We've been given the great commission to go make disciples of all nations Jesus has told us to go preach the gospel of the kingdom to all creation. In Luke's gospel, Jesus says to preach for repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all people. In John, Jesus says, as I've been sent, so I'm sending you out into the world. We have a clear mandate to proclaim the gospel to all creation. That's our mandate. We do it out of obedience to God and we do it out of love for people. We genuinely love people. We genuinely want people to be saved. And the one thing the Bible does not give us is the identity of God's elect. We're not told who the elect are. There's, there's no Bible verse that says, go out and preach the gospel to those that have evidence of regeneration, to those that look like they're elect. Uh, no, we're to indiscriminately preach the gospel to all people. But when we do that, that's the means, that's the outward call of the gospel that goes out to all creation. That's the means that God uses to bring about the internal call or the effectual call where the elect will come to faith. I mean, Jesus said, the sheep will hear his voice. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And and that to me, that is a great um, motivator when I preach, even to preach to, 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 to Christians. See, here's what happens a lot of times. When, when you're a pastor and you, and you preach the hard truths of the gospel and you preach expository preaching and, and maybe you're going through Malachi or you're going through Judges or you're going through a passage of Scripture that's, that's not seeker-sensitive, that's not about you know, dating tips or sex advice or, or how to get out of debt or five steps to having a better uh, parenting life or, or some of this lightweight stuff that a lot of pastors are preaching that people flock to, but you're just faithfully preaching the text. You're preaching the hard truths of the text. You're exegeting the text. You're, you're faithfully proclaiming it. And you may not see this exponential growth you may not see massive salvations you may not see spontaneous baptisms which when you look under this under the surface some of these churches they're not so spontaneous you may not see this explosive growth that maybe the guy down the street's getting all these people coming the one thing you've got to remember and this is what keeps me anchored this is what keeps me undergirded this is what keeps me sane 
as a preacher is that the sheep will hear the voice of the shepherd. You're not there to entertain goats. I'm not standing up trying to cajole lost people into the kingdom by tickling their itching ears or trying to to meet some felt need that they think they have. My job as a pastor is to proclaim the word of Christ so that his sheep will hear his voice. Now, in a mixed congregation, there are his sheep who have already trusted him for salvation and are saved. You've got the saints. And if they're true saints, if they're true sheep, they're going to keep coming because they're hearing the voice of their shepherd and they want to submit to the word of God. They want to be fed. They are sheep that want to be fed the word of God. They will hear the voice of the shepherd. But also, when you preach or when you do evangelism or you do missions, there's also scattered sheep. There's the sheep that are scattered abroad. There's there's the sheep that aren't quite of the fold yet, that, that haven't been brought into the flock, lost people out there who are elect, that when they hear the voice of the shepherd through the preaching of the gospel, they will come infallibly, irresistibly. God will ensure that all those whom He has given to the Son will come. And what's the means by which God does that? It's through the preaching of His Word. It's through evangelism. It's through missions. It's that image we get at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 5 in the throne room of heaven where the lamb that was slaughtered is standing because he has risen from the grave. In Revelation 5, 9 through 10, they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus shed his blood and ransomed, purchased people for God from out of. It doesn't say that he purchased every single person. It said that he purchased people for God from or out of. Those are the scattered sheep abroad that are lost, that are in among all tribes, tongues, people groups, ethno-linguistic people groups throughout the world that are his scattered sheep that are, that, that are lost, but when they hear the voice of the shepherd through the preaching of the gospel, through your, the, the, the missions endeavors or the evangelistic endeavors where the gospel goes forth, when they hear the voice of the shepherd, they will come because God will give them and has given them to Jesus and they will come. So what's our response to this point? confidence we can go out in confidence with the gospel knowing that we don't have to arm twist we don't have to manipulate we don't have to be worldly in our techniques we don't have to try to be overly creative and trying to finding all these um, culturally acceptable ways to try to um, entertain goats we simply lift up christ faithfully preach his word and the promise is that the sheep will hear his voice and they will come that gives us great confidence because we know the confidence is not in us the confidence is in christ the confidence is in the word 
that does not return void. The confidence is in God's electing power. He's elected them already. The confidence is in the Holy Spirit. He will sovereignly regenerate them. The confidence is in what Christ accomplished on the cross. He actually bought them. You see, when you hold to the doctrines of grace, again, it's not a potentiality. It's a, it's a concrete reality that these things have been done infallibly. The Father has elected. The Son has died. The Holy Spirit will effectually call, and you go in the confidence to know that when I preach, and it's God's appointed time, the sheep will hear His voice. Well, what's the fifth point or the fifth reason why I hold to the doctrines of grace? Here's number five. I believe that the doctrines of grace ensure that God will preserve me to the end and that I'll never fall away. It's the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, a precious doctrine that if I did not believe, I would be schizophrenic, I would be nervous, I would always be unsure of my salvation. You see, a lot of Christians confuse theological categories. They confuse justification with sanctification. Now, what's the distinction and why is it so important? Justification is the legal act of God whereby He credits or imputes or accounts your sin to Jesus and Christ's righteousness to you so that based upon the outside righteousness of Christ, not your own, God can legally declare you not guilty. He can declare you justified. He can declare you acceptable in His sight. It's a one-time, unrepeatable, instantaneous declaration by God where we are justified. There's no degrees of justification. You're not more justified depending on how good you behave, and you're not less justified depending on how bad you behave. It's a legal declaration based upon the righteousness of Christ outside of yourself that God credits to you. It's a permanent standing. Now, sanctification is linked to justification but sanctification is the outgrowing of our salvation. It's the progress. It's the growing in Christ. And there are degrees of sanctification. Sometimes you're walking with the Lord more closely, and other times you're, 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 you're maybe having patterns of sin. There may be dry spells in your life, backsliding, uh, but, but ultimately your life is progressing towards holiness with ebbs and flows, sometimes in spurts, sometimes slowly. But a lot of times Christians base their assurance of salvation on their sanctification and not their justification. Now, what do I mean by that? You base your assurance of salvation on how well you're performing in the Christian life. That's sanctification. And if your assurance is based upon that, you're going to either be prideful because you're doing really well, or you're going to be guilty and nervous and, and despairing because you're not doing so well. Instead, we base our assurance on justification that Christ has declared or God has declared us righteous on account of Christ. And then our assurance of salvation is linked to the perseverance of the saints in that we know that because, again, salvation is not a potentiality. It's from first to last, the work of the triune God. If God has elected me and Jesus specifically died for me and the Holy Spirit sovereignly regenerated me, do you think that God's going to leave me to my own devices to fall away? Or will he ensure that I will make it to the end? John 10, 27 through 30, again, this, this imagery of the sheep and the shepherd. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. 
It's an emphatic negation in the Greek. It's a double negative. They will know not ever perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me. When did God give you to Jesus? Before the foundation of the world in sovereign election when he predestined you and gave you as a love gift to Jesus. My Father's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. It's a wonderful imagery of being in the double grip of the Father and the Son. No one is able to snatch us out of the, the comforting, sovereign, powerful grip of both the Father and the Son. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 7-9, Our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God will sustain you to the end, guiltless. He's faithful. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24 Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Again, do we see potentiality? He might do it. He may do it. Depends on how good you are. Depends on how much you um, you perform. No, He will surely do it. Jude, verses 24 and 25, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and forever. Amen. Five reasons, five points why I hold to the doctrines of grace. And I hope that these have been encouraging. I guess the response to this is hope. Hope. You can hope in the fact that God will accomplish the work. God will get you to the end. He who began a good work in you will complete it. Again, the, di- the main difference between Calvinism and all the other systems is, does God truly save from first to last, or does He make salvation possible? Does He make it available? Does He make it where He enables you, but you have to do something either by believing or trusting, or, or there's something that you have to do to, to tr- truly make it happen? Or from first to last, does God get the glory and the salvation of His people? I want to close with a quote by Spurgeon that really has stuck with me over the years. And of course, Spurgeon says it in the way that only Spurgeon can. So here's a quote from Spurgeon. Quote, I do not believe we can preach the gospel if we do not preach justification by faith without works, nor unless we preach the sovereignty of God in His dispensation of grace, nor unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of Jehovah, Nor do I think we can preach the gospel unless we base it upon the special and particular redemption of His elect and chosen people which Christ wrought upon the cross. Nor can I comprehend a gospel which lets saints fall away after they are called and suffers the children of God to be burned in the fires of damnation after having once believed in Jesus. Such a gospel I abhor. If ever it should come to pass that sheep of Christ might fall away, my fickle, feeble soul, alas, would fall a thousand times a day. The doctrines of grace are not what I believe because of a man or a system 
or even a confession of faith, but because I believe it's the clear and consistent, cogent testimony of the Scriptures. And after having studied this for years, and, and, and it just every time I study the Scriptures and every time I dig deeper into the Word and every time I, I read passages of the Scripture, just more and more it, it reconfir- God reconfirms these truths in my heart and in my mind. And I pray that as you think about the doctrines of grace, which, whichever side you're on, maybe you're listening to this and you're an Arminian synergist or you're a traditional Southern Baptist or maybe you're a Calvinist or, or whatever. The issue is not to be so dogmatically tied to a system that you lose the awe of God in your salvation You may have legitimate reasons for why you believe what you believe. But in the end, does it lead you to worship? Does it lead you to have confidence? Does it lead you to humility? Does it lead you to hope? Does it lead you to assurance? Those are the things that you need to hang your your, your hat on. Are are those things that lead you to, to worship the triune God for His grace in your life? Well, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I hope this has been an encouraging podcast for you today. Again, um, if you'd like to go to iTunes and give me a review and rating, that would be very helpful, hopefully a positive review. Or if you'd like to contact me, you can go to seancole.net. You can find my contact information there. I'd love to receive an email or a Facebook interchange. Any way you'd like to get a hold of me, maybe you have some questions that we can interact with on a future podcast. Um, Again, uh, thank you for listening. Wherever you are in the world, I know I have listeners from all over the place. And so God bless you. May God keep you. May God cause His face to shine upon you. Until next time, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.